This program is brought to you by Emory University. Thanks, it's great to be here, and I just wanted to say uh, a warm thank you to Bob and Laura for organizing this and inviting me. Um, so let me start off with a common quote that you'll find evolutionary psychologists throwing up, uh, throwing out. <laughs> Sorry. So at the end of the origin of species, I do study disgust, but anyway. Um, at the end of Origin of Species, uh, Darwin said, in the distant future, I see open fields uh, for far more important researches. Psychology will be based on a new foundation, that of the necessary acquirement of each mental power and capacity by gradation. Uh, and since Darwin wrote these words, uh, there has been quite a lot of activity. So uh, you have the modern synthesis in biology. You have a new genes eye view, uh, so inclusive fitness theory, one of the uh, important extensions of uh, evolutionary theory in the last half uh, century. You have the cognitive revolution, and all of these advancements since Darwin have really set the stage for a new perspective in psychology. Um, and so the perspective or the approach uh, that I take when I am interested in explaining uh, human behavior is an evolutionary computational approach of the mind. And so uh, what's that word computational doing in there? It's because not only am I interested in the structure of ancestral human environments, um, not only social environments, but also physical, biological environments to generate hypotheses about cognition and behavior, but also about generating uh, models of the information processing architecture. So in a real sense, we have a nice uh, artifact or historical uh, artifact here, the human mind brain. And it's a time machine of sorts, so we can look at it. It was forged by the selection pressures of old. Um, and so the question is, what were those selection pressures that brought into existence the multitude of uh, human capacities? And so by thinking about the types of environments uh, that persisted over evolutionary time, it's possible to generate hypotheses. We know lots about ancestral environments, even though they are not here today. We know there were two sexes. We know sexual reproduction occurred. We know that uh, people, uh, they had sex, they had kids, so that organized kinship. Um, we know that social exchange likely occurred. We know a variety of different things, and those, so this can help inform hypotheses and also generate models of the cognitive architecture. And I think this is also important to try and pinpoint how information is processed in the brain. Um, so importantly, um, evolutionary psychology isn't a particular area, it's more of an approach. Um, and because of this, it's possible to use evidence from lots of disciplines to inform uh, your research. So it's important to use um, evidence from neuroscience, clinical science, development, primatology, anthropology to help refine these models. Um, so computational models should really be able to explain the variation that we see uh, from, these different, from these different disciplines. And there's been an explosion of research. So if I can just uh, put up here uh, a bunch of different topics that people are currently looking at. You see people researching reasoning. This is all from an evolutionary perspective, aggression, homicide, infanticide, mating. There's been the lion's share is probably on that. Um, kin detection, inbreeding avoidance, altruism, friendship, emotions, a variety of those. But things like memory that Pascal was just talking about, theory of mind, clinical issues, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder. There's been a lot of uh, headway made in a variety of different areas. Um, the corner of the universe that I occupy really kind of focuses more on kinship. So I'm very interested in the kinship systems. Um, and the computational systems that allow us to behave in appropriate ways towards kin. So let me give you a quick overview of what I'll be talking about today. Um, first, I'd like to share some findings about some of the cues to kinship that I've started to identify. 
And as a psychologist, college undergraduates are usually my lab rats. And so I'll be showing, uh, sharing with you most of the data from college undergraduates, but also uh, findings from cross-cultural uh, populations as well. And then reinterpreting some of the natural experiments. Uh, and then after that, uh, so I have some recent uh, data on inbreeding avoidance behaviors in humans. And then some bold predictions on the next 200 years, uh, which you may or may not find interesting, but in any case. Um, okay, so let's start with why detect kin? So trying to make the natural seem very strange. Uh, I pose the question, you know, you have to avoid choosing them as sexual partners, but why not incest? You might imagine this is a very um, cost-effective, incest might be very easy. I mean, they're right down the hall, there's no dinners, there's no flowers. Um, <laughs> there they are. Uh, members of our family can be very attractive members of the opposite sex. Why not? So yes, making the natural seem strange here. Um, well, for good reason. So first, you know, gross, yuck, ew, you know, gnarly, as some of my subjects have said. Um, but there's good biological reasons for inbreeding avoidance. So first there was some selection pressures. So inbreeding avoidance should exist due to the del deleterious recessive mutations. So offspring of related individuals have an increased probability of inheriting these deleterious recessive mutations. And also uh, offspring of uh, closely related individuals could have other complications that are, are aggravated by pathogens. Uh, so there are indeed selection pressures uh, to and for this reason, you'd expect to see the evolution and maintenance of systems for avoiding close genetic relatives as sexual partners. But why detect kin? There's also another reason, to help them across various social contexts. And so, but why be nice? You know, again, there's no reason necessarily to be just nice to kin. Uh, love and closeness. You feel close, you want to be nice to them. But biologically, more ultimate explanations for why you'd want to be nice. Uh, there are reasons for kin-directed altruism, the selection pressures, so the reproductive advantages accrued through the allocation of assistance according to relatedness. So those of you who are familiar with kin selection inclusive fitness, Hamilton's equation says you're going to be nice to someone uh, so long as the costs are less than the benefits discounted uh, by their degree of relatedness. And the question is that R factor in there. So that degree of relatedness really plays an important role in determining uh, when to be nice. So you would expect the evolution again and maintenance of systems for promoting altruism towards family members. Uh, so reducing competitive effort, increasing altruistic effort towards kin. Okay, so we have two very different sets of selection pressures, both requiring systems for detecting kin. And so the question that I started out asking is what might a well-designed system for avoiding inbreeding and uh, promoting altruistic towards kin, what might that look like? Another way to think about it is how does the mind compute R in Hamilton's equation? And then how does R impact sexual and altruistic motivations? And so it would seem if you were tasked with this problem to come up with such a system, sit down at a computer, start writing some code, what would be, what would be needed? Um, well, it seems that you would need uh, first glance, at least two main systems. First, you'd need procedures for assessing relatedness, and then you'd need separate procedures that take information regarding relatedness as input and regulate sexual aversions on the one hand and altruistic motivations on the other. So here's one such model. <clears throat> I think this is an incredibly simplified view of what's going on, but just to show you, uh, likely there has to be some type of system that takes in cues, cues to kinship, integrates them, so a kinship estimator that's going to take in particular cues signaling relatedness, 
and output for each person some type of kinship index. So you meet each person, and so the presence of particular cues allows you to compute your, their, your probability of relatedness to them. And that kinship index should be one of many inputs towards pro, into programs that are regulating altruism and also sexual attraction. So you have two very different systems coming together here, sexual attraction, sexual attraction or sexual avoidance, uh, and altruism with the same front-end system of kin detection. <clears throat> so my research is really focused on what are these cues? What's, what are the inputs here? So what are the cues to kinship? Well, there's an engineering problem. You can't see DNA. Uh, at least you couldn't see DNA uh, ancestrally. So what cues do we use? Well, there's a possibility. First, maybe cultural and linguistic cues serve as information about who's kin. You know, that's your brother, don't have sex with him. You know, that's your sister, share. Uh, so maybe we're using, you know, linguistic information. I don't have a brother, it makes it very easy to talk about these kinds of things. Um, sorry for those of you who do. Uh, so in any case, maybe we're picking up these linguistic terms uh, and using these, this is as the way of kind of mapping out our, our kinship organization, but these tend to be problematic. And it's not that they're not used, but they're problematic as primary sources of kinship cue information. And this is because kin terms are applied to fictive and genetic kin. So your mother's sister is your aunt, but your mother's brother's wife is also called your aunt. So we're not linguistically marking uh, the difference between a genetic and, and fictive kin here. Uh, in addition, relatedness is perspective dependent. A mother is equally related to all of her children, but you are more equally, you know, you're more related to yourself than you, than you are a sibling, and you're certainly differently re related to a full sibling than a half sibling. So your perspective on the world is very different from anybody else's. No, no one would be motivated to teach you particular, uh, particular um, degrees of relatedness. In addition, kin detection should be phylogenetically ancient. So we should not necessarily rely on linguistic cues or linguistic and cultural information and cues should not have overwritten uh, you know, prior evolutionary mechanisms that operate in other species. Okay, so likely we use evolutionary ecologically valid cues, but there are some design criteria. First, to serve as a cue to kinship, you would have to have signaled kinship in ancestral environments. In addition, it's likely or to start out thinking that different, relate, different relationships are going to be cued. Uh, kinship should be, what am I trying to say here? You should be able to di distinguish between different types of close kin. So the cues that indicate someone is your mother are likely to differ than the cues that someone is your father. So how does a female know who her offspring is? Very easy, she gave birth to, to the child. How does a father know who his offspring is? Okay, and, um, <laughs> and then, how do you know who your, and then as, as the offspring, how do you know who your mother is? And then you know, who's your daddy kind of thing? So there are different sorts of questions. So you have to take from each perspective within the family, ask how would you know who, who are the different relatives? And so I've been focusing mostly on siblings. <clears throat> so for sibling detection, it seems as if there are two different cues. So thinking about what kind of social information would have really gave you uh, a good indication that someone was a, a sibling in ancestral environments. So first you have a really, uh, so just the organization of birth and maternal neonatal care, you have a very stable association that occurs between mom and newborn. So what's called uh, maternal perinatal association, though I'm growing to dislike this term. Um, so just mothers caring for infants. So you have a period 
after uh, birth where mothers are going to be caring for their newborn. And so this particular relationship can serve as an anchor point. So you see mom caring for newborn, and you know that if you have correctly tagged that woman as your mother, then you can be fairly certain that any infant she's caring for is in fact a sibling. However, there's a problem. This cue is only available if you exist. So it's only available for older siblings in the environment. Um, so seeing your mother caring for a newborn, breastfeeding, carrying around, so on and so forth, uh, is a very stable cue. In addition, it would have been stable regardless, mostly regardless of age and co-residence duration, meaning that regardless of whether you were three, 10, or 13, seeing your mother caring for an infant should be a really great cue that, in fact, that is a, a relative, a sibling. But what about if you are that younger sibling now? What cues do you use in order to look out into the world and say, who's likely to be a sibling? Well, this is likely governed by co-residence duration. And so Edward Westermark, a sociologist uh, and contemporary of Darwin, proposed that childhood association is one cue that we use in order to figure out who our siblings are and governs the development of sexual aversions. So childhood co-residence duration. But maybe that's better operationally defined as periods of shared parental investment. So the longer the time you share this period of uh, parental investment with another, and you see this, another person uh, receiving food, care, being yelled at by the same two people or person, mother, you know, you know that they're likely to be a, a sibling as well. And anthropological studies, uh, the kibbutz and the Taiwanese minor marriages seem to suggest that co-residence duration is in fact an important cue. Um, and what, oh, I'm sorry, that's cut off a little bit. In any case, so what you can see here is that for the older and younger siblings, two very different cues might be available. So you have a woman breastfeeding her child, older sibling looking on. Um, and so it's very possible that uh, you have two very different cues, older child using this stable association as the cue that their uh, sibling, the younger child using co-residence duration. Uh, and here's uh, me and my little sister uh, in the 70s, as you can tell from the blanket pattern. Um, and so uh, the modern instantiation of that kind of seeing mom care for a, a newborn. <clears throat> okay, so just kind of feeding those particular cues into the system here. Maybe it's co-residence duration. Uh, that's a cue to siblingship. If so, you should see some type of monitoring circuitry in the brain that's kind of sweeping the environment for who am I uh, receiving uh, parental care from equally. Um, and also maybe a maternal perinatal association monitoring circuitry or who do I see my mother caring for. And of course there might be additional cues. These are just two that seem to kind of jump out. Um, so these should actually be fed in and, and help affect, help to compute a kinship estimator and then affect sexual attraction and altruism. Okay, how do you study this? So you can come up with models all day but you have to go out and test them. And so it's possible to actually see whether or not your proposed cue is a cue to kinship because you should be able to map the variation in sexual attraction, in sexual aversions, and altruism back to these proposed cues. So to the extent that, that, that your cue is a cue, increased amount of that cue should correlate with increases in sexual aversion, increases in altruism. And so that's what I've done. So I've put out uh, surveys to uh, thousands of undergraduates at this point, um, asking them about their families, particularly uh, collecting information about whether or not they were around to see their mother caring for the, uh, their sibling as an infant. If not, how long did they co-reside with their siblings? And I've asked them various dependent measures about altruism. So things like, how many favors have you done for a sibling? Um, also, would you be likely to donate a, a kidney to your sibling, or how likely would you be? Uh, would you, have, you don't, have you given your sibling money? Uh, how much money would you give them? There's a variety of ways to kind of assay for altruism. 
But then in, in addition, I've wanted to kind of explore the other prong, which is the sexual aversion. So I do ask them about uh, sexual behaviors with their siblings. And there is two ways to go about doing this. First, you can talk about your own sexual aversions towards your siblings. So discussed at imagining kissing or having sex with your sibling. Um, and so you can ask people to rank on a Likert like scale uh, how disgusting they find doing a variety of those things. But I've also asked them to rank uh, because everyone ends up at the ceiling, most everyone ends up at the ceiling of those scales. Uh, I've asked people to rank for a variety of sexual acts, meaning that they have to make decisions about which is worse. Uh, so I get really frustrated subjects kind of having to say, I can't put everything at the top, really? And so they have to order it. So you can get a ranking and that allows for a little bit more variation. Um, okay, however, as you can imagine, there are a lot of problems with asking people about how willing they would be to have sex or how willing, but how, you know, their thoughts about having sex with their sibling. So another way to kind of circumvent those problems is to ask them about third party behaviors. Um, so how wrong they find uh, third party sibling incest. And so though I'm not talking about it today, this is a very interesting aspect to my research that kind of opens a window onto the origins of our moral sentiments. Um, but for now, I'm just going to treat these moral, uh, morality data as another dependent measure for sexual aversions. So here's some predictions. When you have this fabulous cue of seeing your mom taking care of an infant, it should just cause you to say, aha, kin. It should ratchet up this kinship index and say, I'm, I'm really certain that you're kin and you should have high levels of altruism. And you should have very high levels of sexual aversions across any period of uh, co-residence duration. So co-residence duration should not be a factor if you have this other really potent cue. But when you don't have this potent cue, for instance, you are the younger sibling in a sibling pair, then you should use co-residence duration as a cue to kinship. So the longer the co-residence duration, the more altruistic and the more grossed out you are uh, at the prospect of having sex with them. So, okay, so let me show you some of the data here. So let me just show you uh, what the axes are first. So this is for uh, MPA uh, absent. So individuals who are not exposed to their mother caring for their sibling as a newborn. This is the younger sibling in a pair, the ones who are gonna rely on co-residence. Individuals who are exposed to their mother caring for their sibling as a newborn, these are typically the older sibling uh, in the pair. And here I have just the effect size of, uh, with co-residence duration. And so what you can see here is that across a couple of different measures of sexual disgust, for people who don't have access to this great cue of seeing their mom care for their sibling as a newborn, co-residence duration is predicting sexual aversions. For people who have access, it's not. In addition, if you look at the moral sentiments as well, it's mapping right onto the personal sexual aversions. What about altruism? Blends right in. So what you find is that people who, have who do not have access to this cue of seeing their mom care for a newborn, they seem to be relying on co-residence, increased periods of co-residence, increased altruism. If they have access, it's not correlating at all. But here's the question. What are the intensity levels? So it's not correlating. But does that mean they're not disgusted, that they're not altruistic? No, it's just that there's no correlation. It's flat. But where are the intensity levels? <clears throat> so one possibility here is um, it could be that all are low on the measures or all are high. Um, so we have co-residence duration. Here are the younger siblings who rely on co-residence duration. And as I showed, you do have a nice correlation coefficient there. But what about the people who are flat, who are using this MPAQ? Are they all high? Are they all low? The prediction is that they should look like this, that seeing your mom care for a newborn, great cue, it should just lead to high altruism, high sexual aversions across the board, not low or not intermediate. <clears throat> and so that's what you find. Um, a very nice, it, 
it's not at ceiling, but it's, it's elevated across the board. So across all periods of co-residence duration, what you find is for um, sibling-directed altruism, for people who have this MPAQ, it seems to be ratcheting up this kinship index all the way to the max, or high, and saying direct altruism, or be very altruistic towards this individual. <clears throat> um, so this is a crazy little uh, figure, sorry about that, but this is the altruism data I just showed you. You get a very similar pattern if you look at moral opposition to incest and then the two different sexual disgusts. Um, yes, there are slightly negative slopes here, but this might be an artifact that this is a dichotomous and that negative isn't significant, but there might be some interesting things going on. What the take home message really is, is just that you have what seems to be two different cues operating here. For people with this cue, it's leading to high certainties of relatedness, high altruism, high sexual aversions, high moral wrongness for third party sibling incest. If you don't have this cue, it seems like co-residence is what's governing it. Okay, so it looks as if this actually provides some evidence that there is a kinship in, uh, estimator. Um, because if there wasn't a kinship estimator, then you might expect that people with access to all the cues, so I saw my sibling being breastfed and I live with them forever, you might expect that, you, uh, that you'd have kind of this additive effect. Uh, but we don't. We see that there must be some type of integration, saying there's one cue if it's being used, uh, and, it's not, and then excluding perhaps the use of other cues. Um, so you don't see a positive slope suggesting there has to be or seems to be some type of integration. Let me just show you some additional data here. Um, so you might ask, when both MPA, so senior mom, uh, invest in a, a newborn and co-residence cues are available, so these are only for older siblings who have this, what's the story? So you can look at the correlation between um, co-residence, I'm sorry, so how does co-residence predict altruism up here? And it does, and MPA also predicts altruism. Not all older siblings see their mom breastfeeding or caring for their younger sibling. Um, so that's what leads to that. But in any case, if you were to um, control for MPA, co-residence no longer predicts altruism. If you control for co-residence, you have MPA still predicting. So individuals who have access to multiple cues, MPA co-residence, seems like they are just using MPA. That seems to be the primary cue. And the same pattern happens with the, the moral opposition. Okay, so if I had to have a flow chart here of what you're thinking in your mind, not consciously, obviously, but you know, you have a sibling, MPAQ present, yes. Well, set the kinship index high, be nice, avoid sexually. MPAQ uh, is, not, is not available. Then ask yourself, did I co-reside with this individual starting at birth? If yes, uh, kinship index should increase as a function of co-residence duration, so it should ratchet up aversion and altruism accordingly. If no, kinship index is low, they're fair game, oops, sexually, and uh, altruism might be governed by other things like reciprocal altruism and things like uh, uh, banker's paradox, which is mutual value, uh, association value, sorts of things like friendships. Okay. It ends up that the effect of kinship cues should be very targeted. It shouldn't be affecting all aspects of life. It should be affecting kin-directed aspects of life, and the cues to siblingship should be affecting sibling-related sorts of things. So co-residence does not predict altruistic tendencies in general. I've asked subjects, how altruistic are you to your friends? Well, how long you live with your siblings is not predicting how altruistic you are with, to your friends. It's only predicting sibling-directed altruism. It also should predict sexual, uh, it's sexual acts unrelated to siblings. Um, let me show you some data. Uh, on each of these things before I actually go through. So in terms of uh, other sexual acts, I apologize, these are really disgusting. Um, so 
it ends up that we, in the ranking part, we ask people to rank, order all of these things in terms of how disgusting. Um, actually, these are mild uh, compared to some of the things that were thrown out as possible things to use in experiments, but there are things like IRBs and then actually getting published uh, to consider. But anyway, so there are some really gross things in here. And what you find is that, you know, asking people to rank order uh, how gross it is to have your sibling fondling you versus just like lying on you or tripping on you or things like that. It ends up, it's very, it's targeted and really kind of, uh, I'll get that off, to, um, it's targeted to the sibling's sexual acts. In addition, asking people to rank order a whole list of 19 acts uh, according to how morally wrong they find these acts, it ends up it's the rank order of the sibling uh, sexual acts uh, that co-residence predicts, co-residence duration predicts. So you ask people how morally wrong it would be for siblings to uh, have sex together, consensual sex, and also to marry. That composite score of the rankings of those two, longer periods of co-residence, more morally wrong uh, for those individuals. And it's not predicting other things. Um, you see it's predicting the mother-son things, but I think that's an artifact of the siblings. But in any case, you see it's not predicting anything else, although there's this weird little thing here that's negatively predicting smoking marijuana, but I'm not sure that has anything to do. <laughs> Uh, with my studies. Okay. In addition, you should see sex-specific effects. So altruism shouldn't distinguish necessarily between same and opposite-sex siblings, whereas sexual disgust should. So you should be uh, develop aversions towards that sex which you are attracted to. So in heterosexuals, you should develop sexual aversions towards brothers. Um, and what you find here is that if you were to look at individual sub subjects' co-residence duration with opposite-sex siblings versus same-sex siblings, what you find is for altruism, it's predicting both quite nicely. But what you find for moral opposition to incest, it's only, only your co-residence duration with your opposite-sex siblings is predicting how morally wrong you find sibling incest, not your same-sex siblings. And this makes sense because only opposite-sex sibling information should kind of have access to the sexual aversion system or serve as input. Okay, so cross-cultural findings. I've replicated these things in uh, Hawaii, so asking people a variety of different altruism uh, questions. You find the very same pattern emerging. Um, so these are just the, the data for the altruism, not the sexual aversions, though they, they yield the same thing. So a very nice correlation for people who rely on co-residence, people who don't rely on co-residence and have the MPAQ. Co-residence is not predicting altruism. Also in Dominica, sorry about that. Dominica, it's a tiny little island, I don't even know. There you are. Um, and so, very briefly, what you find is a very similar pattern. The graph doesn't look as, impress as impressive, um, but it, the numbers are still uh, quite nice. You find again, MPA absent, very nice correlation with co-residence for altruism. You have the MPAQ, no, no uh, correlation. Okay, so, so far, evidence points to two cues that govern the detection of siblings, at least for the altruism domain across cultures, though uh, it does hold for the sexual aversions and, and moral sentiments. But there are many other questions to answer, so this is a very simplified view so far. One question you might have been asking yourself, so seeing your mother care for an offspring definitely uh, is an important cue. What about seeing your father care for an offspring? Well, evolutionarily speaking, that's not such a hot cue in terms of relying on it to uh, discern kinship cues. Um, with parental paternity uncertainty. So ancestrally was not as valuable or as reliable as a cue as NPA. Um, and it ends up that it's not correlated with measures. So you can look at individuals who have access to seeing their mother care for their sibling, their father care for their sibling, and live with their sibling uh, throughout childhood duration. So these are typically their older siblings. 
Um, and what you find is that um, MPA is still the most important cue uh, in mainland USA and then also in Dominica, small island population. So, M so PPA, so seeing your dad invest in an offspring, is not serving as this important cue to kinship. Yes, I think fathers do play an important role, especially with distinguishing maternal uh, half-siblings from full siblings. I think there's important questions to continue to ask there. Do beliefs matter? So I've just been talking about maybe non-conscious cues uh, coming into the system, but what about explicit beliefs? It ends up, oddly, they don't matter. So it doesn't matter what you're told or what you know. Uh, explicit beliefs about kinship don't matter. So younger siblings with older step-siblings and adoptive siblings, they know they're not related. They don't share, you know, blood. Uh, but co-residence duration is still predicting quite intensely altruism and sexual aversions. You can control for beliefs in all, the, in all the subjects and you find that it doesn't affect the results. It's kind of an interesting thing that there, are, there might be separate systems governing sexual behavior. There's one relying on kinship cues and others that might kind of take more culturally relevant information to, to, to uh, hone behavior, but interesting. Also, the Israeli kibbutzim and Taiwanese minor marriages that I'll talk about in just a second, uh, they're not related. Uh, and you still find very interesting patterns of sexual aversions developing there. Okay. So with the mentioning of those two natural experiments, let me turn to some of the work uh, and thinking that I've done on them. To the extent that these two cues are, are real and that a kinship system is real and uses those two, two cues, they should be able to explain some of the natural phenomena that we've seen. And so for those of you not familiar with these natural experiments, um, the first case that I'll, I'll discuss are the, is the case of the Taiwanese minor marriages. Very briefly, you have a young female or a newborn that's adopted into a family, uh, into her future husband's family and raised alongside her husband until they are wed. So imagine you adopt a bride in, they have a son, around age 13, 14, puberty, you say, aha, shabam, you're married, go consummate, thank you. Um, in the majority of cases, the family already has a son. This means the son is older, they're adopting in a younger daughter. In the minority of cases, however, families adopted in a daughter in anticipation of having a son, which meant that the daughter ended up being older, the son was the younger in the pair, and ends up that this matters. So Arthur Wolf has spent many decades uh, researching the Taiwanese minor marriages, and so he has two terrific books uh, out on this. Um, and so one of the things that he has found uh, so going in to test Westermark's hypothesis, who first put out that co-residence or uh, childhood association, uh, prolonged childhood association leads to the development of uh, sexual aversions in adulthood. Arthur Wolf went to the Taiwanese minor marriages and said this is a great test case. These children are brought together during childhood. You should therefore see uh, sexual aversions develop. And so what Arthur Wolf has done is that he has looked at, in the majority of cases, if I can just have you ignore this uh, broken line and just focus on the solid lines for a second. What he's done is he's looked at age at first association of the couple, of, uh, of the couple. and in this case you have an older son and a younger daughter brought into the family. Um, and so the daughter wasn't always brought in as soon as she was born. Sometimes she was adopted in when she was one, two, three, four. Sometimes the son was three, four, five, six. So you have all these different age groups and he was able to compare them and what he's found is that age at first association, the younger that they're brought in, at least the age of the wife seems to predict sexual aversions. So the younger the age of the, the bride that's brought in, uh, the greater the sexual aversion. 
fertility index, sorry. So this is his general fertility index. So you might imagine that high fertility, low disgust, sexual aversion, and then low fertility, uh, higher aversions, less likely to have sex. Um, he didn't actually ask them, this is all through some records. But in any case, he's basically finding that it is the age of the younger partner that is predicting sexual aversions or the general fertility index. The age of the older partner, the brother in this case, is also not predicting, is not predicting at all. So regardless of when his age, when she's brought into the family, fertility index is pretty much flat. If you just draw the regression line, it's pretty much flat. Okay, and then when the wife is older in those minority of cases, it, it seems to decrease, but the point is it's not increasing. Let me change this graph around so it looks a little bit more like what I'm talking about. So if you have less co-residents, kind of mapping it onto how I've been framing my, uh, my results, less co-residents, more co-residents. So if you meet someone, you're introduced at the into the family at age 14, you're not gonna live, to, you haven't lived together as long as you would have if you were introduced at age zero. And if you turn this general fertility index into uh, around so that you have low aversions, um, so you have a high fertility index, low aversion, low fertility index, high aversion. So I've just flipped his graph around, replotted the data, so it looks a little bit like mine. And basically what you're seeing is a very similar pattern, is that for the males, I'm sorry, for the females, they're the younger partner. They don't have access to the cue of seeing their older brother being cared for as a newborn. They're relying on co-residence duration. So even though they know they might not be related, Still, they're, they're being invested in by the same woman, by the same man. Increased co-residence duration, you're finding increased uh, sexual aversions. The male, on the other hand, has seen his mother uh, care for this newborn. And so in the case when they are newborn, it, was, it wasn't uncommon that females breastfed these young children who were adopted into the family. So these males might have very well been uh, exposed to a very potent cue of seeing their mother care for um, a newborn, and you're finding that their age of co-residence or their duration of co-residence is not predicting. So just reinterpreting the Taiwanese minor marriage data, it seems to fit the pattern that there are these two cues. Um, for the Israeli kibbutzim, uh, Joseph Sheffer has done a lot of work on this. Um, what you have here in, on the Israeli kibbutz, what you had are children who were just born were put into these children's houses, these bait yeladim, and they were raised by a common caregiver. So you can imagine that uh, a dozen or so children who were born within a couple of months were put into a house. They're all cared for by the same caregiver who might not be the mother of any of them. The caregivers swap out. Um, so it's, you know, communal uh, living, thank you. And so jobs are kind of swapped among men and women equally. So your caregiver might not even have been female. In any case, you have these children living together and doing all the things that siblings normally would have done in the same household. <clears throat> siblings, because they are typically age difference, are in different children's houses. So you weren't raised alongside your, your siblings. <clears throat> so previous studies have looked at sociological variab variables relating to sexual attraction like marriage. So Joseph Sheffer has found that um, surveying uh, all the Israeli kibbutzim uh, at the time, that very few marriages occurred between individuals who were in the same peer group, who were in the same children's house. When marriages did occur, you found that people were not introduced into the peer groups until they were age six, seven, or eight. So there is something special about this early childhood. I'm more interested in individual psychologies. Yes, the sociological variables about marriage and fertility rates are interesting. I'm actually interested in, you know, tell me how grossed out you are about having sex with this person or how nice you would be. 
Um, and so what I've done is I've hooked up with a colleague at Tel Aviv University to study some of the people on uh, a variety of kibbutzim, and so this is just one of them. You know, I got, I didn't know what I was expecting when I uh, first got there. It looks like, you know, graduate residence. Uh, I mean, it, it's actually fairly nice. Um, they have particular areas where all the children play. It's actually really nicely set up. Um, but these things aren't, uh, the kibbutz is actually being phased out. In any case, I, remember, I interviewed 16 members of a variety of kibbutzim. It ends up that children's houses recently ended. Um, so a lot of parents started to object to having to give their children over to these children's houses and wanted to spend a lot more time. It was very unnatural, and it's actually led to a generation of people who have a variety of issues with family um, because they weren't raised alongside their parents and attachment issues. But in any case, um, Subjects ranged in age from 21 to 57. They completed an interview. Um, I asked them about all their members of their peer group. I asked them about durations of co-residence and then asked for a variety of measures of altruism. For instance, I asked them about, you know, does, does this person call you? Uh, so I tried to get, uh, as best I could, some behavioral measures of care. And so going out of your way to check up on people. So how often this person calls you? How often you call this person? Do you spend the high holidays together? I thought these were nice indications of of you know, how much they were like kin, um, but also dispositional measures, how willing you would be to donate a kidney, how, how willing you'd be to give this person some money, um, take care of this person if they were ill, and a sense of duty to make sure that they were okay. So a variety of altruism measures. I also asked them about sexual disgust, and I had to, actually right before I left to do some of this research, I realized my scale went from not disgusting to very disgusting. And someone said, what happens if they find them attractive? And so I was like, duh. So I, I changed the scale to be very, attract very attractive to neither here nor there to very disgusting. So it's now a much larger scale, and thank goodness. Um, so asking them how they would find passionately tongue-kissing this person and having sex with this person. And I asked this of all the opposite sex peer group members. I was also interested in their more, uh, the development of their moral sentiments. Um, so I asked them to kind of give their input on a story. Imagine hearing about a man and a woman who grew up together on the kibbutz and lived together in the same children's house from birth. You learn that this man and woman started a sexual relationship as adults and were considering getting married. What, was your, what is your opinion of this man and woman starting a sexual relationship? What is your opinion of this man and, uh, man and woman getting married? And so I asked them to rate these things on a variety of moral dimensions. So let me just kind of show you uh, interesting data here. So for males and females, let me just show you the data. So I get a nice trend here, so that they are using co-residence in general. The longer someone lived with the peer group member, the more altruistic they were. It ends up that this trend held a little bit more for males, and it also held a little bit more when looking at behaviors rather than dispositions. It ends up that you can ask someone, who would come to your aid? Would you come to someone's aid? Um, or, or their actual behavior, and you would get the idea that they would come to their peer group member's aid. But if you ask them about their dispositions, for females at least, they gave more socially desirable answers. So they would always come to the aid of anybody regardless. Um, but when you ask about behaviors, you start to get some interesting variations. So some interesting facets about doing research in different, in different places. Sexual aversions, um, let me just, females were at ceiling as predicted. Forgot to mention that. In my research, I find that um, females are uber disgusted at all of these things, uh, and for good reason. So inbreeding is much more costly. Any instance of inbreeding is much more costly to a female than it is to a male. So I get, you know, most females are at ceiling. On a seven-point Likert scale, seven's across the board. Males, a little bit of a different story. Um, so there is some nice variation to play with with uh, the males. And so for this, I actually got, let me just show you some of the data. 
Um, so I got, for the male data, very nice correlations here so that the longer the co-residence duration, uh, the more disgusting it was to uh, engage in variety of sexual behaviors. Um, for the moral stuff, um, I should just say, let's see, the longer the total co-residence with all their opposite sex peer group members, the more morally wrong individuals found two group members having sex and getting married. So it was very interesting that this, these kinship cues are not only patterning one's own sexual aversions, they're patterning one's moral sentiments about what others should do. That kind of maps onto some of the data I have uh, in US college populations. Okay, um, let me kind of, sure. So summary for now, the mind seems to use two different cues for siblingships, at least two different cues to uh, categorize other people as siblings. So first you have this MPA cue, senior mother, care for a newborn, and when it's absent, co-residence duration or periods of shared parental investment. Uh, these two cues predict altruism, sexual versions, and also moral sentiments. Uh, they do so in different populations, and so I'm more and more convinced that this is probably something real. Uh, and of course, the idea that it's show predicting our moral sentiments leads to some interesting questions about, about morality um, that others are taking up. So developing a computational model and predicting some cues, going out and testing it, that was the way I, I proceeded. Of course, it was a very simplistic computational model. I think a lot more is going on and a lot of other cues are at play. Um, and certainly we can talk about this during, during the question and answer period. But to close, I just wanna kind of share some new data that I've recently collected. Um, so I am, I've started up a project with Marty Hazelton, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Pillsworth uh, from UCLA, and I'm interested in patterns of association across the me menstrual cycle, specifically inbreedings avoidance behaviors. So no one's really looked at inbreedings avoidance behaviors. We can ask people how grossed out they are. We can look at marriage rates. We can look at fertility rates, but actually trying to measure actual behaviors. So it's been done in non-human animals showing that females avoid uh, male kin during periods of estrus, during periods of high fertility, but what's going on in humans? Do you find this, this pattern? And so looking across the menstrual cycle, sorry, this is a little silly, but it kind of came, a cute little idea here. So, so when people, when females are not fertile, it seems that they should be more likely to affiliate with uh, kin and also specifically male kin. But you know, when they're fertile, maybe they're not promote, uh, you know, preferring kin, but instead non-kin and attractive non-kin. So you've not giggled, but you know who these people are, right? It's, I'm, not, I'm not that old. Uh, um, okay, so in any case, I was just curious whether or not you would find interesting patterns of association across the menstrual cycle, uh, not only with attraction, as has been studied by a lot of people, but also with the aversions. So again, hooking up with uh, Marty and Elizabeth, we were interested in changes in affiliation across the ovulatory cycle. And, it's really hard to measure this. I mean, you could try and strap a camera to someone and see who they interact with across a menstrual cycle. That's quite expensive. But another way to go about doing that is to collect cell phone records. And so that's what we did. Um, so we had a bunch of women come into the lab and do a variety of things. They kept a, uh, a log of their fertility. Um, we asked them to uh, do the LH test strips uh, when we thought that they would be fertile. And so that confirmed when their periods of high fertility were. 
Um, and so we were able to back calculate, forward calculate, determine when their periods of high fertility, low fertility were. And then we asked them to bring in their cell phone records uh, afterwards and they went through their cell phone records indicating who they called, uh, who this person was and asked them a variety of questions about each person. Are they kin? How close they are to this person? And so on and so forth. And so let me just share with you some preliminary data. Um, so what we found is that uh, in general, calls made to parents, it looks as if there is a marginal effect of the sex of parent, though no effect of fertility. But if you look at the simple effect of fertility by parent, females during periods of high fertility are actually increasing their calls to mom. If you look at what's happening with dads, they're decreasing. So there's a nice interaction with fertility and sex of parent. Now you might be, th I mean, there's a lot of alternate explanations that need to be tested. Don't worry, I know. <laughs> uh, but you might ask, well, that's calls to parents. What about calls from parents? It ends up that that's flat. So there's no difference in parents calling. Uh, it's really, it seems to so far indicate that females are less motivated to call their, their, male, their fathers. Uh, we're going to look at brothers and a variety of other things. Um, and so there are some other, obviously, alternate explanations that need to be ruled out I should say that's the number of calls. You find the very same pattern in when looking at number of minutes uh, as well. So self-directed affiliation with fathers decreases at high fertility, which was pretty interesting. And the question is, is this inbreeding avoidance or is it something else? Females trying to avoid the control their fathers might exert over trying to get them to either, you know, uh, to not be sexually active or whatever, uh, or to guide their sexual activity in some way. Um, but it ends up that father-initiated contact doesn't differ. So fathers didn't call more when the females, or didn't check up more when the females were fertile. But this could be due to the fact that females aren't at home and their fathers aren't picking up on fertility cues necessarily. Um, so there are a lot of interesting things. But so far, the data seem to point out that there's an interesting difference in periods of fertility and that females are avoiding calling their dad, as all of you females go and check your cycle and call your dad. Um, okay, so it, interestingly, and we're gonna have to think about this, is that affiliation with the moms is increasing, um, which is actually quite nice because you might expect that, well, maybe it, it, you would increase with all uh, or decrease with all relatives. No, mothers, you're actually increasing contact. So some general conclusions. Um, the application of an evolutionary framework to human behavior and cognition has yielded a wealth of information about our, our evolved psychology across a variety of domains. Um, I think an evolutionary approach at least provides additional hypotheses that might not be visible under some theoretical models, so it's an interesting approach to take into account. At least with respect to kinship, starting to uncover some of the cues and also some of the systems that regulate sexual avoidance and altruism, uh, and again, also some interesting implications about our moral sentiments, and this is my last slide here. So looking forward, I think it's really important uh, I think it's important in psychology for students to have a good training in evolutionary biology, and you don't see that quite often. And so psychologists are, so psychology graduate students are really left to um, rely on the psychological theories of old. Um, and so this is a, I think this is a problem. We need to integrate more into the training of psychology students an evolution, a strong evolutionary background. Um, in addition, what I find very valuable is the development of computational models, and I wish even of my evolutionary colleagues that they would take that in, more into consideration to kind of think about the information processing architecture of the systems that they're interested in. And also, importantly, to take integrate findings from other fields. So to work with neuroscientists, to work with anthropologists, to test things widely, to, think, to look at clinical conditions and cases. 
And eventually, uh, one can hope, in the next 200 years, even perhaps, map models, you know, these models, onto those models. Um, how that might happen, I don't know, but somehow the, they have to connect up. If the computational models of the, the systems and ad adaptations, psychological adaptations in the human head look like something on the left, they have to be neurally instantiated and look like something on the right. And how that happens, if that will ever happen, is a good question, but I think uh, hopefully soon, with all the research we've been hearing about, we're getting closer. So thank you very much. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.